So this morning, we're sitting in this church in large part due to the work and life of Martin Luther. Ironically enough, the statement is actually doubly true because before this was Restoration Community Church or City Reach Church, we're kind of in the midst. It's, it's an awkward phase. We're, we're not sure what our name is right now. But before it was this, the church that we are in right now, uh, this church over 100 years ago was built as a Lutheran church. Martin Luther, for those that don't know, was a German priest and professor of theology. And he is best known for uh, launching the Protestant Re- Reformation. Luther was upset at certain elements of corruption that he saw in the Catholic Church. For example, he protested, that's where we get Protestant Re- Reformation from, he, pro- he, he, he protested uh, against the sale of indulgences. Just one example. The indulgences, um, you know, with enough money, you could go to, a, you know, church, your priest, purchase a pardon for a sin that you had committed or were going to commit. It was, there was a lot of corruption in that, and Luther was like, this is not right. Maybe, you know, might be aware if he, like, nailed 95 theses, these, like, statements to, to the Wittenberg door. Um, but, you know, the sale of indulgence is one, is one of these things that people are real familiar with. Um, but one of the, the better, one of the less known elements of Luther's legacy is closer to our conversation that we've been talking about the last two weeks and this morning about the gospel. You see, Luther was a very devout follower of Jesus, and he was considering, he was thinking very, very clearly and critically about the implications of that on his faith. And so as a result of this kind of logical conclusion, he, he had somewhat of a spiritual crisis. He recognized that no matter how good he tried to be, and no matter how much he tried to avoid sinful activities, he always found that he was falling short. No matter how much he tried to purify his mind, he was always having some kind of sinful thoughts. And so he was worried that he couldn't do enough good stuff in order to earn his place in heaven. Now in seminary, one of my my, uh, church history professors described Luther as spending hours every day in prayer, analyzing, agonizing, you could say, over every thought and decision that he had made. And trying to figure out, like, was that sinful? for me to have that thought or to do that action. You know, the priests would often, would kind of get frustrated with him because there'd be these, what they perceived to be mundane items that Luther brought up to them in confession. It's like, oh man, here comes Luther, like, let's act busy. I don't don't want to go in confession with him because I'm I'm looking forward to spending my next two hours doing something else, right? But for Luther, who believed that this un- the theology of the day, believed that this unconfessed sin would lead to an eternity in hell, Luther was really just following his belief system to its logical conclusion. So this is, this is his crisis of faith, like, what am I to do? And one day as he was reading the scriptures, the Lord brought one particular verse to his mind, and it kind of changed everything for him. And it was Romans chapter 1, verse 17. This is what it says. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For it is written, or as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, for Luther, here it was. Instead of the Christian life being about working really, really hard so that you don't displease God and kind of like eke out your way to heaven, right here in the Scriptures, Luther is seeing the connection between faith in Jesus and the righteousness of God. What Luther realized in that moment is that his pursuit of Christ was not conditional 
upon his performance. And he began to see that connection between the lavish grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may have heard, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There are these five solas that kind of came out of this process for Luther that really set the stage, the theological stage, for what followed in the Protestant Reformation. Now, the last two weeks, we have been examining, right, the goal has been to enlarge the gospel in our lives. And I use this, the cross chart, as kind of the foundation for that, right, to showcase that to get that gospel, to get that cross to increase in our lives, we need to increase that top line, which is a growing awareness of God's holiness, and, and increase I keep wanting to say increase or elevate, but it's like going down. Uh, you know, the, the bottom line, a growing awareness of our sin. Again, not that we're becoming more sinful, but a growing awareness of our sin. Last week, we saw that we have a tendency to shrink the cross by pretending and performing. We have a habit of, of making ourselves out to be something that we are not by mistakenly think that we can work really, really hard in order to meet the standard that God has set for us. Paul has this to say in his letter to the Romans a little bit later in the, the book, Romans 10, verse 3. He says, for being ignorant, kind of deals with the same subject, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, in this, the context of this chapter, Paul is specifically speaking the Hebrew people's uh, unbelief. The, the primary issue that Paul is saying in this passage is that instead of leaning into God's righteousness, they've worked really hard to follow all the rules to create, to manufacture their own righteousness, their own right standing before God, something that, that was based upon their performance. Now, th this works mentality is something that I believe that many of us continue, even as much as we profess the gospel, it, is, it, it slips us up. We continue to fall back into this performance or works mindset time and time again. So this morning, the desire that I have to answer our question is, how does the be our belief in the gospel, because that's what this is called, believing the gospel, that's what this, this, this week is, is titled, how does belief in the gospel free us from our inclination to pretend and perform, to shrink that cross, as we saw in that second slide. And I believe that the Bible provides two motifs for the ramifications in the gospel of our lives that I want us to look at. And these motifs give us the confidence not to trust in our own actions. Right? We don't trust what Paul calls in, in the New Testament letters the flesh. A lot of times we use the, the word flesh to be like this evil, kind of wicked, sinful tendency, and, and there is elements of that as that is a definition for it. But another definition that Paul uses, flesh can also just mean striving by our, our own effort, working in kind of that man-made capacity. But instead, what these motifs do is encourage us to lean on the gracious work of Jesus Christ and putting our confidence in him and there instead. So if you have your Bibles, let's open to Philippians chapter 3. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but I want to focus on some of the themes that are relevant to what we're talking about this morning. And, you know, I'd encourage you kind of, once we seem to be wrapping that up, don't close your Bible or keep your, like, finger at that page, because we're going to flip back a few pages to Galatians a little bit later. 
So Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Paul says this, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, let me, let me pause here for a moment and try to explain. Now, I can't go into all the details. There's definitely seemingly some name-calling that's going on here from Paul, calling these what are called the Judaizers, uh, these, these, these very staunchly Jewish Christian figures who are advocating for circumcision. He calls them, them dogs here. Uh, but what's at play here specifically in verse, the first three verses is that Paul is using circumcision, this outward mark of inclusion into God's people as a symbol of the confidence of the flesh. I am circumcised, so therefore, because this marker is on my body, I am in good standing with God. That's kind of what he's pushing up against. And Paul says, nope, that's not how it works. He says, in fact, relying on that outward marker, if that's what you're doing, if you are relying on circumcision to be that thing that puts you in good standing with God, in, in essence, what you've been doing is you've just been mutilating yourself. It's worthless. That's not what it's for. Now, let's continue picking up at verse 4, where he, he uses his own accolades to, to showcase like what could be presented as worth in God's economy. He says in verse 4, "...though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more." And he lists all this stuff. "...circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin." a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. Now, I know Pharisees get really bad raps in the New Testament with with Jesus. They were uh, fierce opponents, but Pharisees in that day and age are like the modern-day evangelical in terms of they were like the moral moral majority, the the moral, uh, uh, you know, the folks who were living according to the things that they professed, if you will. So he's, he's using it in a good term here. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So here, let's pause here real quick again. Paul says that whatever those merits, whatever those activities seem to provide, they are nothing compared to what he has received in Jesus Christ. In fact, the very next verse that we're going to get to in a moment, he calls these same acts of righteousness rubbish, a word that is closer in proximity to dung or human excrement. Uh, When I preached about this a few years ago, I used a little bit of an expletive to, uh, you can probably guess what that expletive is. I won't use it this morning, but that's what Paul is saying in this. That's what he's comparing it to. But as I continue, pay attention to what replaces his hard work. So verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Pay attention. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Then he finishes out, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul is stating here that his righteousness, his good standing with God, is not because of anything that he has done. Paul's point is, if there is anyone who had the resume to get into the kingdom of God based on merit, he was the guy. But like Luther later discovered, Paul states that his standing with God wasn't upon his good works, but because of God's grace, giving him a righteousness that was supernatural in origin. This is one of the primary ways that we ought to see the gospel applied in our lives. We have been given, not earned, we have been given good standing and favor with God, not because of our effort, but because of the work of Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection. This is what theologians call, I'm going to use a theological term here, it's called double imputation. When Jesus suffered and died on the cross, it was because our sin, all the wickedness that we've done, all the mistakes we have made or will make, were imputed to him, were given to him, handed off, transferred to him. That's kind of what imputation means, a transference. And so Jesus Christ took upon our wrongdoings and errors, our disobedience to God, And so Jesus' suffering was a result of reaping the consequences of those actions, of that sin. So because our sin was imputed upon Jesus and addressed, we have received forgiveness from our sin. And when people talk about the gospel, that's typically what they mean. That's the primary mode that is communicated. Jesus suffered so that I didn't have to. But that's only half the gospel. This is the point, if this was an infomercial, you would hear, but wait, there's more, right? If we only focus on our sin being taken away and given to Jesus, then our standing with God has gone from enemy to neutral. God's not angry with us anymore, but you could argue in the moment that he's kind of indifferent, or he's like, he's waiting. He's waiting to see what we do whether he's going to be happy and satisfied in us or not. So the second half, that's, that's like the first part of the double imputation, double in, indicating two. The second half of the double imputation is what provides for us the positive disposition with God. So atonement, right? The, the Christ's sacrifice for us got us halfway there. It returned us to a place where God wasn't angry with us anymore. But what follows is where we receive the righteousness of Christ. All of his merit, his perfection, the obedience that he lived while he walked the earth is credited to our account. Let me try to put it in in, in economic terms for you. Let's just say you're in huge financial debt, you've got terrible credit, and so the atonement of Jesus, in essence, cancels that debt. You no longer owe this large sum of money that you could not pay. But you, you know what? In that moment, you can still get rejected for a homeowner's loan. Because the banks don't care that like, your, your debt has been reduced to zero dollars. They're more concerned that your credit score is like 400. This second piece of redemption is like Jesus not just paying off that debt, but also being the co-signer to your loan. Right? His credit score of 850, you know, perfect credit score, is more than enough. He has taken that. We, we get to kind of ride the coattails of his perfect credit score in order to put us in good standing with the banks. Again, trying to, trying to change that up a little bit so we can understand this. 
And so this is huge, and this is why we can confidently say that if you came to the forefront of God's mind right now, this is kind of how we closed out last week, regardless of how life seems to be going for you, regardless of how well you would measure, you would assess yourself as measuring up to God's standards, right now, God is joyfully satisfied in you. God is pleased in you because he is pleased in Jesus. We've been given what is called the passive righteousness of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther called it passive because we don't need to labor for it. We receive it by faith. This is the same righteousness we just saw Paul write about in the letter to the Philippians. And so as a result, we are no longer defined by our sin. We've been freed from it. But in addition to this, the merit and life of Jesus Christ has been credited to our account with us not having, without us having to do any work for it. But unfortunately, we have a tendency to forget about this passive righteousness of Jesus. We know that Jesus has forgiven our sins, but in order to get this good standing with God, we think we've got to work really hard. We've got to perform in a certain way to get him to keep loving us. If we aren't resting in this passive righteousness, the only way the only way that we can think that we can attain God's favor is, ba- is falling back into works righteousness, a, a trap that we fall into all the time. I've talked about Jack Miller before. He was the founder of World Harvest Mission. It's now called Surge, the organization. Uh, it's the organization that a lot of this gospel-centered life content comes from. And he's a man that really understood what it meant to believe the gospel, to trust in the righteousness of Christ and see that ram- those ramifications in his life. One of the places that we often seek to justify ourselves is not just before God, but also before other people. We tie up so much of our worth, of our self-identity, in what other people think about us. So Jack was a pastor, and he told the story about, um, I mean, this I'm sure has happened many times, but in particular, the story, his family was running late for church. I don't know if any of you can, can identify with that, right? being late to some kind of commitment. And Jack was beginning to get really impatient with his wife and his kids, and he starts snapping at them. And he just kind of blurts out like, you know what, fine, I'm just going to go down there by myself. You guys can join me when, when, you, when you, you know, get your act together, if you will. Now, Jack realized that his anxiety, that I think many of us can probably relate to, was built around this value that he placed upon what other people thought of him. Like, you know, what will the elders of the church think if I'm not the first one there? Are they going to think that I'm working hard? Are they going to think I'm slacking off? As a result of this misappropriated self-worth, when Jack's family hindered his ability to perform to a certain measure, he began freaking out. He began lashing out at those around him. I mean, think about, think about the things that cause you to lash out at others. I'm I'm willing to bet that it has something to do with a loss of control. It has something to do with like a a concern about what are people going to think about me if it continues in this way. All ways that we work to try to build and protect our self-worth and our identity. In Jack's case, it occurred to him that he was giving too much weight in his identity to what others thought of him. And so we just saw that one of the ramifications of the gospel is that we've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and as a result of that, God looks favorably 
God is pleased with us. He is satisfied in us. And so when we lean into that, when we live out our life, it frees us from the tyranny of mankind's approval. Now, that doesn't mean that we should just be a jerk, be like, I don't care what you think about me. God loves me. But if I have God's favor, I'm far less inclined to fret about what other people think about me because they don't, they don't dictate who I am. They don't tell me who I am. God's the one who has is, who is solidified my identity. If God, the creator of the universe, the lover of my soul, approves of me, loves me, and I am rooted in that love, then I'm, I'm not going to completely upend my life when I feel like others might not be treating me the same way or, or, or feeling the same way about me. That's just one example of that. The passive righteousness of Jesus Christ gives us good standing with God and can give us confidence of our self-worth when we interact with others. Jesus knew each of us when he died on the cross, an act of love. If Jesus Christ was willing to go to those lengths out of love for us, that should be the primary understanding of our love. If Jesus says, you are worthwhile because I say you're worthwhile, far be it from us to let anyone else tell us differently. Now, I know that's a little abstract, and I hope that the second motif, the example the Bible gives, is a little bit more concrete. The Bible tells us that because of Christ's redemptive work, we have been adopted into his family. And there's a number of passages that speak to this in Scripture, but I, but I want to, let's go to one in Galatians. So if you still have that Bible open, we're going to look at Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. So it's just, you should be able to flip back a couple pages. But when the fullness of time had come, I'm picking up at chapter 4, verse 4, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. So verse 4 and 5 say what what we've already looked at, that Jesus Christ lived under the law, lived this perfect life in order to redeem us, free us from the burden of the law. But then it continues so that we might be adopted. And verses 6 and 7 spell this out a little bit more that we've been moved from this lowly position of servant, you could argue enemy of God, to being written into God's will. God provides His Holy Spirit to cry out in affection for our Heavenly Father, Abba, right? The same endearing word that Jesus is using of His Heavenly Father when He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've been brought near into the family of God. And so if we are children and heirs, that means that that comes with the full privileges and benefits of what it means to be the family of God. Now, growing up, I saw this, this profound example of this in my family. So, when I was a kid, we would go, every Thanksgiving, we would go up to my uncle's place in Utica, New York for Thanksgiving. And I enjoyed his visits because uh, we didn't see his family too often, uh, but, but he, his, his son, my cousin Billy, was a few years older than me. And so, uh, I played a lot of video games, and because he was older, he, always played, he was always better than me. So I loved going with him so he could teach me how to play these things. And I remember sitting in his basement playing, like, Contra, and he taught me, like, the code. If you don't know what that is, you should Google it, because it's classic video game lore. Right, the code. 
And it wasn't until many years later, I had all of these, these great times with my uncle's family, and it wasn't until many years later that my mom shared the dynamic of, of her brother's family, that when my uncle John had married my Aunt Chris, Billy was, was actually my uncle's stepson from a previous marriage. But Billy's father had basically abandoned the family and seemingly wanted nothing to do with them. And so when my uncle John married her, he adopted Billy into their family. Now, growing up, I had no idea that Billy was not his biological son. He treated Billy like his biological son. He loved him deeply. He cared for his needs. It didn't matter what Billy's birth certificate said. Uncle John was his dad. And Billy got to reap the benefits of that relationship. Now, I'm sure some of you can relate. There are many of you in this room or listening online who have had experiences of broken family systems. Maybe you've lost one or both of your parents. Maybe it's a relationship that they're still alive, but it's like a toxic relationship. Maybe you've been alienated from them. It doesn't matter what it says on your birth certificate. If you felt rejection of a human father or a mother, you have a dad in heaven who adores you, who has adopted you into his family. We've been adopted. We're sons and daughters of God, and that comes with certain rights and privileges. If you come Tuesday night, we're going to explore this a little bit more, and one of the, the self-assessments that we use is called, they call it orphan versus children. Are you right now living like a spiritual orphan or a spiritual son or daughter of God? Because an orphan doesn't have anyone fighting for them. They're on their own. If they're going to get by, it's only by the, the sweat of their brows. We call God Father, but we're often living like we're spiritually and emotionally orphaned. Here's a few descriptions of what it might look like to live like a spiritual orphan. See if any of them relate. You're anxious about friends, money, school, grades, etc. You have a need to look good, a need to be right, lacking confidence. Solution to failure is to try harder. You tend to compare yourselves with others. You need to be in control of situations. You tend to be motivated by obligation and duty, not love. When we forget that we have been adopted by God, it's easy to fall into any of these categories. Being a spiritual orphan, we feel that full weight of responsibility on our own backs in order to pull ourselves up from the bootstraps of life. But conversely, here's some examples of what it might look like to being a, a son or daughter of the king. You feel free from worry because of God's love for you. Prayer is your first resort. You're content in your relationships because you feel accepted by God. You have a freedom from making a name for yourself. You're able to take risks, even fail. That is huge. Are you, are you able to handle failure? God truly satisfies your soul. This image has been circulating on Facebook lately, and I think it highlights the different perspective. Now, when they use religion here, you know, they're referring, I think, to these, like, man-made, kept routines that we think earns God's favor, right? Religion, the way many of us live, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. But the gospel says, I messed up. I need to call my, my dad. Is that where we're going to when we feel that pinch of life? The reality of the gospel is that we have an advocate on our behalf who loves us and works for our good. 
One of the, the biggest applications of this whole way of thinking is that I think it gives us the security to be vulnerable with ourselves. We can take risks, we can fail, we can laugh at ourselves when we make mistakes. We can give ourselves grace and extend that grace to others. Because if God has a passionate love for me through Jesus Christ, then I can rest in the security of that love and not be controlled by what others think of me. Last example, and then we'll close up. We see this progression, this honesty in the life of Paul. It's almost like you can track his faith growing, right? Because Paul wasn't, he wasn't a like, God saved him, and then all of a sudden he's this perfect Christian. There's process, there's growth, there's sanctification that took place in his life, and you can almost see this growing in the scriptures as he rests more and more in God's satisfaction for him, freeing him to be honest and forthcoming with others. So 1 Corinthians, which might have been the earliest of the New Testament documents, listen to how Paul defines himself. He's describing how Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He says this, uh, chapter 15, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul labels or ranks himself as the lowest of the apostles and gives this rationale because that he had, you know, persecuted the church. Now let's fast forward a few years. Paul writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians 3, verse 8, he says, To me, though I am the very least, not of the apostles, of all the saints, grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles. He went from the least of the apostles, right, the leaders of the church, to now the least of the saints, the bottom of the barrel when it comes to all believers. He's identifying himself as. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul's now labeling himself as the chief among sinners. Again, not that he's getting worse or he's, you know, being more and more sinful, but he's recognizing he is in such solid standing with God's attitude towards him that he can be fully open and honest about all of his flaws, all his blemishes. Paul took heart to heart Jesus' teaching that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. When you are secure in the love of God, because you are believing and applying that gospel in your lives, you can take a bold-faced look at your flaws, and you can be brutally honest with your standing. You don't have to fight. You don't have to claw your way to attain a certain rank or title. When we know that we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that we've been adopted into God's family, it squelches our need to pretend that we are something that we are not. We already have God's favor in Christ. We don't need to labor. We don't need to earn it. And so my hope would be that the result of this would be praise. I want us to live, to learn to live in this freedom, because that's what it is. God has freed us. But once we're there, I, want, I hope that our posture naturally turns to one of praise. Hallelujah to Jesus Christ who's freed me from sin, who's freed me from my need to be right, who's freed me from my need to control my own destiny, to fight tooth and nail for my status. Right? The good news of the gospel is not that God makes much of us, but that God frees us to make much of Jesus. Friends, when we feel, when you feel those orphan-like tugs coming, when we feel that no one's out there looking out for you, you've got to do it yourself, I want to encourage you to reject them and instead believe the gospel. Remember the love of Jesus, which was displayed through his sacrifice on, on your behalf. Remember that God is fully satisfied in us. The law 
no longer gives us any worth before God because we already have his full worth. Now, we're going to look at the place of good weeks. That's what we're going to talk about next week. What are the place of good works in our life in light of what Christ has done on our behalf? But for now, I want you to experience the freedom from striving as you rest in the goodness of God and have confidence that he's on your side. Let's pray. God, may we just take a breath right now and know that you love us know that you are pleased in us. And all those times that we, send, we, we tend to kind of just revert back to that American dream theology that by good hard work we make something of ourselves. May we just stop and reject that, repent of it if you will, and believe once again anew the confidence that we have in your righteousness that you have given us, not made by man but with supernatural origin. Give us this rest this week. In Christ's name, amen.